Let's play a game this morning. Yay! Everybody loves game time. The game I would like to play is called Imagination Station. And I'm going to ask you to engage your brain to think about something that is mysterious, somewhat strange, that we don't really know a ton about. We just kind of have faith that it exists. And that thing is Canada. So say um, <laughs> there's this there, say there's a small school in Canada, and for our purposes here, we'll say that its fictional name is Curling College, which makes sense because curling is very popular in Canada. They've tried to align themselves with some of the value systems of Canada. The Curling College Mooses. Uh, people don't know this, but moose racing is the third most popular sport in Canada behind curling and ice hockey, so they've really done a good job here reflecting the culture. <laughs> Someone didn't like that, so I'm getting on somebody's nerves this morning. Use your imagination. So um, the curling college mooses, they have this person on their campus um, who is their chaplain. This chaplain's been talking to them, but then this chaplain decides, i got to take this show on the road. And so this chaplain starts going to all of these other schools in Canada, much bigger schools in Canada, the University of Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia State University, Fort Manitoba State University, very successful schools who are actually um, uh, very, very good at a lot of different things. And this chaplain goes to these schools and says, look, big schools, people who I've never heard of me before, y'all messing up. And not only are y'all messing up, y'all messing up so bad that people are going to stop coming to your college. Your moose racing team is going to lose all of its games. Your ice hockey rinks are going to heat up and become pools of water. They are going to evaporate under the hot summer sun. Your dorms will, will empty out. And all that you will find in your cafeterias is moldy bread. A time is coming where you will experience desolation because y'all ain't acting right. Now... How do you think all of these big schools in Canada would respond to this chaplain? They'd be like, ah, this dude kind of seems like a little bit of a jerk. They'd see this dude walking around screaming, hollering, carrying a sign. They'd be like, you don't want no problems, big fella, right? Why don't you just ease on down the road, go to your place, go back to where you came from, and handle the affairs of your own place? Because what well, we know after a quick Google A, which I think is what they call Google in Canada, search, is that you've been saying these same things to your own college in, 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 in 50-50 chance whether or not they listen to you. It would be sort of a confounding situation. It would be something that we wouldn't expect to happen or expect to end up well. And we would think that that, that chaplain would probably have to go hang his head in shame and cry himself to sleep on his gigantic praying pillow. I bring all of this up, this imagination station game, to help us try to think about what is actually going on in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23. That is a big text to carve out for, for one sermon. And I promise we'll get you to class on time today. We're just going to pull out a few things from there. But Isaiah, after talking um, to, to God's people for the first 12 chapters of, of this prophetic book, turns his attention to begin to speak, we a lot of times assume about, or to, sorry, we assume that he is speaking to other countries that are a lot bigger than him. In fact, over these 10 chapters, 
He has oracles concerning Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, and Israel, Ethiopia, Egypt, Cush. Babylon, again, he comes back and gives them a little bit of seconds, just a right, left. Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, and Tyre. And and a lot of times, the way this is even presented in our Bibles is that this is uh, Isaiah's prophecy against Babylon. As though Isaiah goes to Babylon and starts preaching at them about their own destruction, about how angry God is with them. But if we play that out in practicality and we play that out in our minds, it doesn't make a ton of sense to us. Because if, if we think about it, and if Isaiah was supposed to be ministering to and teaching these, these people in, in Israel and in Judah, if he's supposed to be ministering to, to God's community, wouldn't it waste a lot of time to go all over literally what, what people would view as almost the entirety of the world, a person with no social capital, a person with no prominence, a person who probably wouldn't be listened to, and just to, to, to really bang on people and say a bunch, of, a bunch of crazy things about them. I think as I've been studying these chapters and reading this, I don't think that Isaiah is actually going to these places and speaking to them. I think that Isaiah is speaking about them. I think as it says in scripture that, that Isaiah is giving these oracles concerning these places. But I think these are oracles. These are words that are really still meant to fall on the ears of the people of God. And if that's the case, if Isaiah is, is prophesying all of this destruction, all of this desolation, all of these oracles about all of these other places that are so big and, and so powerful and so influential and some that are even very far off and outside of what is really kind of the known world of the people of God, what's going on here? I think there are, are, are three of these oracles that I want to point out to talk about three of the main things that Isaiah is trying to speak to the people of God. The first one in this oracle concerning Babylon, Isaiah 13, 1 through 5, an oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. We can't see it right here straight off, but I think what Isaiah is telling the people of God to do is to trust in God. Because actually Babylon has not come to the fullness of their power yet. What we know right now is going on is, is the Assyrians are coming into to, to, to their sweet spot in the fullness of their power. The Assyrians being a thorn in the side of the people of God. The Assyrians being people who are, are conquering them, who are, who are spreading them out. The Babylons are the ones who are rising up to come. And the people of God are in an interesting place. Tim Gabrielson a few weeks ago talked historically about how they were like Poland and how they were a, a country of influence, but they were in between other countries of greater influence who at some point in time were going to try to get out, get after each other, and Poland got caught in the middle. 
Now, history is great. Not all of us are historical people. Some of us are more current event type people. So let me put this in a way that current event type people like me could understand. Something that we are wrestling with today, the civil war going on in the Marvel universe. And in that situation, the people of God will be more like Spider-Man, right? So Spider-Man, he's had some okay movies. They've never figured out like the really the best actor to play him. They messed up when this like eighth reboot that they're getting to do. They didn't hire Donald Glover to be him, which is fine. Here's why I'm totally okay with it, because they ended up hiring Donald Glover to be young Lando Calrissian in the new Han Solo single movie that's going to be coming out in a couple of years. So it all worked out for the glory of God. We're we're cool. But you've got Spider-Man who's like the people of God, right? So influential, got some books, people know his name. Now, he's no Iron Man. He's no Captain America. And so when the Civil War breaks out, what's a Spider-Man to do? You got to pick a side. And neither of these sides look like great sides to pick. On the one side, you have whiny old Captain America who's always crying about something, who's always going off on his own, won't listen to anybody. On the other side, you have this arrogant Tony Stark Iron Man who doesn't even actually have any superpowers himself. He's just got all this stuff flowing through him. He's got to put on the suit. Otherwise, who is he? He's nobody. But Spider-Man's got to pick a side if he's smart or else he's just going to get caught up in the middle. And what God is telling the people of, of, of God to do is, look, don't pick a side. Don't pick a side. Because what you're going to be tempted to do is align with Babylon. You're going you're to be, be tempted to put your hope in Babylon because you think that they are the ones that can, can free you from Assyria. But, I, but I'll tell you what, powers can come and powers can go. But God is the one that you are supposed to put your trust in because God never leaves. God will never forsake you. And maybe there might be these these punishments. And maybe it might look like other people are, are stronger. But there will be times where God can have influence over what is going on in the world. And look at the influence that it says that God has. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from distant lands, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to to, to wipe out, to destroy the whole land. No matter how strong these up-and-comers look, no matter how strong these, these established powers look, God is stronger. And so if you're going to put your hope in something, if you're going to put your trust in something, What you have to put it in is not the powers of this world, but in the God who created you and in the God who gave you his charge. We start to see that charge a little bit when we skip up to chapter 19, where there is this oracle concerning Egypt. And what God says in in chapter 19, um, beginning in verse... I'm going to start a little before I, I told Rashawn, and I'm going to back up a little bit. But starting um, uh, in verse 17 is this, that in that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble before the fear, with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts has purpose against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. 
a pillar to the Lord that is at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance." So at first, with these oracles, we see God telling people to trust in him. Secondly, we see that God's plan is ultimately for what? It's for the glory of God. And God sets up this this scenario, this vision, where Egypt, a place where the, the leaders, the pharaohs, were viewed to be gods themselves, will have places of worship and signposts for God, both at their core and at their periphery. And not only that, but, but, but there will be this highway, this coming and going between various historical enemies of the people of, of, of Israel. And they might not be first on the totem pole, but they will be a people who are, are, are restored to some kind of relative power, which for them at this point in time was probably difficult to believe. And what's going to go on here is, is based not on nation against nation, but on harmony. And of everybody being united in their common understanding that they are children of God. Man, when we look at the world today, how awesome would something like that be? Where nations weren't just talking bad about each other, but but where nations were seeing the commonality of their human condition. And what they really need to be doing is glorifying God. And that God would, would be sending down healing. People would be returning to the Lord, that the, the, the mercy of God and that the restoration of God would, would be pouring out on this space, on these people of, of influence. How great would that be? Because see, what God is trying to tell people here is that even with the comings and goings of empires, even with the rise and fall of nations, that God's plan is ultimately not for destruction, but for the glory of God. That God's plan is for the glory of God. And the door is kind of pushed open here for us to see the the broader plan for God's glory to permeate the whole entire earth. To see this ministry to, to the Gentiles, to those people who are not Jewish. And, and, and um, the, the theologian John Goldengay puts it this way, which is very eloquent. Israel will thus fulfill its vocation to be a blessing in the midst of the world. Not because it can turn itself into a blessing, but because Yahweh will make it so. And while Yahweh will still call Israel my own possession, he will call Egypt my people and Assyria my handiwork. Descriptions that elsewhere apply only to Israel. Isaiah thus does not give up the idea of Israel's special significance, but makes it impossible. Any inference that Yahweh, that God, does not care for other people. And the care for other people that God has 
It even goes beyond the imagination in the, in the scope of what Israel itself can imagine. Sometimes I think it's hard for us to really come to grips with how big this world is. And, and, the, and the fact, the reality that God is doing things all the way across the world, right? And that there are things going on across the world that, that we don't even know about. I was talking to one of our foster daughters a couple of weeks ago. One of our foster daughters flew in from uh, Florida. And then one of our other foster daughters who was with us and lived with us for a while at the same time, she and her husband, Ashley and Kyle, they live in, in Japan now. They live in Japan because Kyle uh, is in the Navy and he goes out on the boat, you know, for about a month at a time and then comes back and, and they hang out. And it was crazy, man. It's like living in the Jetsons. Like you fire up your phone and you just do the FaceTime thing and like crystal clear, like you could talk to people who are 12 time zones away. And so like they're just getting up and we're trying to squeeze this in so that we can get uh, our kids to, to bed because it's like 7.30 p.m. here, 7.30 a.m. there. And we're talking to them and in some ways it's, it's like they never left. There is this sense in which, wow, the world is a really small place. But then we hear the, the stories that they're telling about some of the cultural differences. And we're like, man, the world is a pretty big place. And one of the things that was cool just to hear from them was, was uh, some of the stories about what God is doing in their life through people that God had planted there a long time ago. Because they're going to uh, this church, and it's, it's led by uh, uh, a guy who has kind of brought a lot of people within Christianity kind of together. And they're like, man, it's crazy. You know, we sing some gospel songs. Like, we sing some, like, Hillsong stuff, a little bit more like we did at Sterling. And um, this is a, uh, a church that's not on the base. It's off the base. And they're like, it's just it's such a, a blessing to our souls. And I'm like, man, this kind of sounds like a church that I would want to go to, right? All of these people feel like they're at home and they're able to, to come and get together in the church is literally their sanctuary and they're being built up and they're being united. It's a church that I've never heard of and it's as far away from us and our experience as we can get. But God is, is doing something there. The, the plan that God has, the scope that God has for his glory, it's bigger than any one of our experiences and so it's important to, 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 to listen and, and to pay attention and to figure out what is going on. This is talked about a little bit in Isaiah 23, beginning in verse 13. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre. And as in the song of the prostitute, take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute, make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. 
You know, sometimes there are times where I'm like, well, if you look at the Hebrew, this is what that means. Um, this is not actually a compliment in the Hebrew, that whole, like, she will whore herself around as a country. That actually kind of means what, what it's saying. So God's not saying that, oh, yeah, like, Tyre figured it out, and they're awesome. No, he's like, look, Assyria came in. They laid waste to her. She was desolate for 70 years. And then finally, when this country came back, it was right away back to its own shenanigans. Like, there, there's not a lot of ambiguity there, and there's not a lot of poetry for me to, like, make us feel better about those words that, that the, the prophet lays out. However, uh, it, it is interesting, right, that very dissonant part at the end that talks about, so you have this land that's prosperous, and they're sketchy prosperous. Like, they're not legit prosperous. These aren't legit businesses. There's, there's a lot of, of murky business going on here. And however, we see a God who is redeeming the situation for the glory of his people. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. What's that mean specifically? Tough to say. But what we do see here is God saying that, look, I have some some knowledge and I have a plan. And sometimes that plan means calling people, calling institutions, calling nations into account for their sins. Sometimes that, that means that, that, that nations, that people, that institutions need to be put down for a minute. Or in this case of Tyre for, for 70 years. And sometimes they're allowed to come up. And the thing that we know about this world is when things are allowed then to regrow, there is a, a, another invitation there to cooperate with the person and the purposes of God. And sometimes we learn our lesson and we cooperate. Sometimes we don't learn our lesson and we don't cooperate and, and, and it, this is not the kind of economy of sin that we think of when we think of the Old Testament. Well, they disobeyed, and so then God was like, that's it. Now you're wiped out for good. No, God's like, well, they, you know, they'll become prosperous again. But their prosperity, even though it does not honor the Lord, it will support the work that the Lord is doing. And it will support the people of God in some way, shape, or form that is difficult for us to really imagine and and, and might feel like very much a gray area for us, but that God has set aside and ordained for his own good. Because God's plans are bigger than ours. God's understanding is bigger than ours. And the ways in which God works are far more creative than we could ever even think of. You know, in terms of application today, um, I, don't, I don't have anything to tell you. I just have questions to pose for you after I've spent some time in these 10 chapters. Um, and, and the questions that I have to pose for us to really wrestle with and that I've really kind of been wrestling with and I probably have some not fully formed opinions on that I'd love to chat with people about and I'm sure other people on campus um, who you know are, are even smarter and wiser than I am would love to chat with you about. But these are kind of the questions that, that I settled in on as I, I read this and started to feel a little uncomfortable about. And the first is this, for us as Christians and us who are a part of Christian Christ-following institutions, be they this school or, or churches that we have been involved with, what alliances have we formed where we hedge our bets in case God does not come through? What alliances, what allegiances, what relationships have we formed to hedge our bets in case God, the, the God of the universe, by the way, does not come through for us? 
Because here we see the people of God being called to trust in God implicitly and to know that structures come and structures go. And so that their main focus, their main allegiance should be to their creator. And I just wonder in my life, in the churches that I've been involved with and the groups that I've been involved with, in what ways are we trying to get ourselves aligned with things that may not be glorifying God simply so that we can survive? Not having the faith that God will ensure our survival or that even through dark or difficult times that God will sustain us so that his purposes can be done. And the other question that this really raised for me is, is it took kind of a, a long scope of history. What does it mean to be a Christ follower who dwells within the boundaries of the empire? What does it mean to be a Christ follower who dwells within the boundaries of the empire? Because when we look at the geopolitical situation right now, I think we would say there's the United States and there's Russia and there's China and there are a lot of other significant players, major players, but we're kind of the three places that when we do things, there are a lot of ripple effects. I think it looks different to be a Christ follower in each one of those contexts. I think that the relationship that the Christ follower feels as though they have with the governing authorities in each one of those contexts looks very different. And so for us, I just wonder, what does it mean for us to be Christ followers who live within the borders of an empire? And as we wrestle with that, what does it mean? What would it mean if our status as Christ followers within the borders of this empire were to change or to morph over time? How would that affect the trust that we have in God? How would we interpret that? And how would it inform how we live out our faith in this place? I just pose those as questions. Those are things for us to wrestle with. And as we look at how God spoke of, of the powers of this time of, of Isaiah and how we look at the power that God had as we look at how these things come and go, I just think those are our, our, our things that as we look at our own history, as we think about our current estate, and as we look toward the future, I think if we're going to take ourselves serious as people who pledge ourselves to live these lives where we follow Jesus, that we kind of need to be about wrestling with. God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit so that when we get big questions dumped on us, uh, we can think about those things and not necessarily have to solve them ourselves. But we know that you can give us wisdom and, and faith to persevere through the ambiguity of those questions. I thank you, God, that we have each other where we can talk these things through. I thank you that you have been the God of this universe for infinity. And I thank you, God, that you have plans and that you have power. Help us to, to trust you when we can't see your plans or when we feel like your power is not manifested in ways that um, is particularly for our own comfort. Help us, God, to learn lessons when we need to learn lessons. Help us to be humble when we need to be humble. Help us to be bold when we need to be bold. Help us over all things to listen to you, to be about studying your word and applying it to our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.